the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among trees. And they shall be vowed to the right and to the left, all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect. Excuse me. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad women in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Shimeites by itself, and their wives by themselves. And all the families that are left, each by itself, and their wives by themselves. This is the word of the Lord. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols in the land, so that they shall be remembered no more. And also, I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirits of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother, who bore him, will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother, who bore him, shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on 
feet. But he will say, I am no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, from man so be my youth. And if one asks him, What are these wounds on your back? He will say, The wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refined silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. This is the word of God. Well, hello, everyone. What does that even mean? What's up? Uh, good to see you all at the church uh, this morning. Uh, my name is Huey, if we haven't met before. Uh, wonderful that we can gather uh, around God's Word. Um, I know many of us are, are sick at home. Uh, there's lots of people who've caught COVID as well. So uh, if you're joining from home, uh, then uh, lovely to have you with us. And uh, we're going to pray uh, for quick healing for you. And uh, that this uh, gathering today will be an encouragement to you as, as you watch along as well. Uh, great to have our uh, kids with us as well, and I uh, hope you can uh, follow along. I think uh, some of you have uh, little uh, activity sheets that you're working on, but uh, if you want to follow along with the sermon as well, uh, you're more than welcome to, to do that. Uh, how about I'll lead us in prayer, and then uh, we'll have a look at this uh, passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for your goodness and kindness to us. Uh, thank you for uh, a wonderful day uh, where the sun is shining that we can enjoy. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people. And uh, we pray, Father, today that um, your spirit will be with us. Um, and as we uh, look at your word together, uh, we pray that your spirit will help us to understand even more clearly about uh, your grace to us uh, in our Lord Jesus um, in such a way that it will cause us uh, to flee for mercy from you uh, and to repent uh, and to worship Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, what are some big questions you are asking in your life at the moment? What are some big questions you are uh, asking in your life at the moment. If it's, it's a rhetorical question, um, Zach, um, you don't need to put your hand up. Uh, perhaps if you're approaching the end of university, you're asking yourself, you know, what kind of career you should embark upon. Uh, if you're going through a midlife crisis, uh, perhaps you're asking yourself, uh, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? If you wish to be married, uh, perhaps you're asking yourself, uh, you know, is that person the right person for me? Or is this person the right person for me? Uh, you see, there are all sorts of big questions that we ask ourselves, isn't there? Now, uh, these may be good questions to ask, but I want to suggest that because we don't know the future ahead of us, we don't actually know 
which questions we ask will turn out to be the big questions in our lives. Um, I mean, we might think that the questions we ask are the big questions, yet you might wake up one morning and ask yourself the seemingly trivial question of, uh, should I stay and work at home or should I go into the office to go and work? You decide to go into the office, and on the way there, uh, you are involved in a serious car accident, and you end up in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. And that seemingly trivial and small question that you ask yourself that morning actually turns out to be the biggest question in your life. But when we turn to the Bible, it is precisely because God does know the future that He is able to tell us what the big questions are, you see. And I want to suggest that the biggest question you and I can ever ask ourselves is whether or not we are right with God, whether we are in a right relationship with God. You know, lots of people think they are right with God without actually bothering to ask what God might have to say about the matter. But you cannot just be right with God simply on your own terms. You need to listen to what God himself says about what it means to be in a right relationship with him. And so, are you right with God? Are you in a right relationship with him? Now, we've been looking at the Old Testament book of Zechariah for many weeks now, and uh, we're now on the home stretch, uh, so well done for, for getting this far. But you'll notice that in today's passage, uh, God speaks to the people of Zechariah's time, which was uh, about 500 years before uh, the coming of Jesus. Uh, God speaks to the people of Zechariah's day about a future day that is to come. And uh, as Sam mentioned, you can see it in the phrase, on that day, that is repeated again and again in our passage. Uh, if you have a look at uh, chapter 12, verse 3, for example, uh, you will notice the phrase, on that day. Uh, it's there in verse 4, on that day. It's there in verse 6, on that day. Uh, it's there in almost every verse uh, of today's passage. And so today's passage is a passage about that future day that is to come for the people of Zechariah's time. But here's the thing. On that day that God speaks about, those who are not right with God will be destroyed. Uh, come with me to chapter 12, verse 9. Uh, chapter 12, verse 9. And you can see it there where God says that on that day, he will destroy the nations that are opposed to him. But friends, that day will also be a wonderful day for those who belong to God. For if you come with me to the end of our passage in chapter 13, verse 9, chapter 13, verse 9, into that, uh, you can see right at the end uh, of verse 9 that on that particular day that, that God speaks about, God himself will say to his people, 
these are my people, and his people will say back to him, the Lord is my God. Now, that's a classic expression in the Old Testament of what it looks like to be in a right relationship with God. And so are you right with God? Am I right with God? That's the question we're going to wrestle with today. Now, if we have a look at the beginning of our passage, uh, the day that is to come is described in terms of a great battle. And you can see that uh, at the end of chapter 12, verse 3, end of chapter 12, verse 3, where the nations of the world gather against the people of God in Jerusalem and lay siege to God's city. Uh, of course, this is exactly what happened uh, uh, many years before uh, Zechariah writes, when the nation of Babylon uh, actually laid siege to the city of Jerusalem and took the people away into exile. Uh, but the only difference is that on the day that God speaks about here, it will actually be the reverse. God's people themselves will be the ones who destroy the, the nations who gather against them in the city of Jerusalem. You can see it there in verse 2, can't you, where God says that the people of Jerusalem will be a cup of staggering to the enemy nations. You can see it there in verse 3, where God says that his people will be like a, a heavy stone that kind of comes down and crushes the enemy. Now, these are all images of judgment in the Old Testament because God is going to use his people to bring judgment on the nations that oppose him, you see. But notice, friends, that the people of God won't win this battle in their own strength. Now, for example, it is God who will give them uh, this victory. And so, for example, in verse 4, God says, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Uh, that might sound familiar because that's exactly what God did back in the Exodus, if you remember. Striking every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Uh, in verse 5, uh, you can see there that the people of Judah themselves recognize that Jerusalem is winning the victory only because God is on their side. They're winning by the strength of God himself. But why all this violence? Why is such a battle between God's people and the nations required? Why do God's enemies need to be destroyed. Why can't God simply just accept everyone if he is a God of love? Well, it's because the day that Zechariah speaks about here is the day when God will finally bring in his kingdom. But you see, God cannot bring in his eternal kingdom if there are people who refuse to acknowledge him. It's a bit like if you come to Australia as a refugee. Uh, I have a few friends who uh, have come to Australia um, uh, and they came out on a boat from Vietnam as a refugee. And uh, they are wonderful law-abiding citizens. 
But if you come as a refugee and you refuse to acknowledge the laws of this country, then there is a huge problem, isn't there? Perhaps you engage in criminal activity. Perhaps you refuse to pay your taxes. Perhaps you fill out the, 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 the speeding laws and the road rules. You see, if you don't acknowledge the authority of the land, then you simply cannot stay here. And that's exactly what God is saying here, isn't it? Not everyone is in a right relationship with Him. Because there are so many who refuse to acknowledge Him and who refuse to accept His authority over their lives as the one who created and as the one who owns and rules the world. And so there will come a day when they will be removed. Well, uh, we've just uh, witnessed a great battle scene, and yet, when the dust of the battle settles or subsides, it seems in this passage that there are actually casualties on God's side as well. Specifically, you can see there in chapter 12, verse 10, have a look with me at chapter 12, verse 10, that God speaks of someone who is pierced. Did you notice that? Now, this piercing is not just a paper cut. Rather, it's, it's a piercing by a sword. It's the kind of piercing that is fatal and leads to a loss of life. But who is the one who is pierced in this passage? Well, on the one hand, it seems like God himself, doesn't it? For if you have a look at the middle of verse 10, you will see that God says, or God speaks in the first person. He says, when they look on me. And so it seems like it is God who is the one who is being pierced here. Doesn't it? But it's not that simple because if you look at the words that immediately follow, you can see that God speaks about the one who is pierced in the third person. It's on him. Whom they have pierced. And so, what is going on here? Is it, is it God who is being pierced, or is it somebody else? Well, I think what is going on here is that there is a double piercing. The one who is pierced fatally is someone other than the Lord God who speaks here. In fact, uh, I think there are all sorts of clues here as to who it might be. But the biggest clue comes in verse 11, which speaks about the mourning that happened uh, in the plain of a place called Megiddo. Do you see that in verse 11? Now, does anyone remember what happened in the New Testament, uh, sorry, in the Old Testament, on the plains of Megiddo? Does anyone carry this kind of information around with them? Um, put up your hand if, oh, she know it. What happened at Megiddo? Oh, well done. That's why he's a minister trainee. Um, Josiah, one of the good kings of Israel, uh, was fatally wounded by the Egyptian king, Necho. And so I think what we are meant to see here is that the one who is pierced in this passage is... God's king, who is kind of 
going to resemble um, a good king like Josiah. But you see, when God looks upon that one who is pierced, he himself also feels the piercing. That's why God can speak of himself as being pierced as well. Now, parents will understand this, won't you? Now, I live down the street from um, where Andrew Chan used to live. Uh, you might remember that Andrew Chan was the one who was executed uh, a few years ago um, for drug trafficking in Indonesia as part of the Bali Nine. And when he was executed, the, the cry of anguish on his mother's face was uh, awful, distressing. For she felt more than any of us the piercing that her son felt on that day. But the tragedy here is not that it is a criminal being pierced, but that it is God's good king, his righteous king, that is being pierced. And so what happens when the people of God discover this? Well, you can see there in verse 10 again that they begin to mourn his death. But here's the thing. It's not that they mourn simply because their good king has died, but they mourn because they realize that it is they who have killed him. In verse 10 it says, On him... Whom they have pierced. In other words, it's not simply that they are sad that they've lost a great leader, but they mourn because they realize that their king has died because of them, because of their own sins. And so they mourn in such a way that they have a change of heart towards God. That's what genuine repentance is. It's not simply feeling sad about my sin and rebellion against God. It's not simply about regretting things that I have done in my life. Now, the non-Christian person feels sad and has regrets about their lives. But it's realizing that it is my sin that has put God's king to death. And having such a change of heart towards God that I start to live differently. That's what repentance is about, isn't it? Notice that in verse 10, this kind of mourning and repentance only comes as God pours out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, it says. In other words, genuine repentance only comes when God pours out His Spirit so that you and I can receive God's grace and plead to God for mercy. Friends, do you see in your life a life of repentance? Do you see yourself looking to God, mourning over your sin, in such a way that you can see real changes in your thinking and in your life. Well, if you do, then praise God. Because that kind of repentance is only possible 
the day that that God speaks about here in Zechariah, is not only a select few who mourn over their sin and repent, but it is every one of God's people. Now you can see it there in verse 12 and 13, don't you? Uh, all of Israel are mentioned here. Uh, from the house of David, the king, to the house of Nathan, the prophet, to the house of Levi, the priest, to the house of the ordinary Israelite. And every one of their wives are mentioned here because it is every individual who is part of, who is part of God's people that mourns and repents. You see, this is very important, isn't it? For what God is saying here is that mourning over sin and repenting is the responsibility of every individual who belongs to Him. Have you ever met people who, whenever you speak about sin, can only ever think about the sin of others and how much they have been wronged in their life? You know, I wouldn't be surprised that whenever I speak about sin from the Bible, uh, that there are actually some of you who can only ever think about the sin of others and how awful other people are and simply agree that other people are sinful. But you see, what God is saying here is that those who are right with Him will be the ones who realize their own sin to mourn their own sin and return to God in repentance. Is that you? But friends, if we go on in the passage, uh, I want you to see that the day when God's King is pierced is also wonderfully a day of deep cleansing. Uh, you can see it there in uh, those wonderful words of chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1, where God says that on that day there will be a great fountain with an endless supply of water that can cleanse God's people from all their sin and uncleanness. Further, it will be a day when God will cleanse his land of idols. Uh, it's there in chapter 13, verse 2, isn't it, where, where it says that idols will be removed so completely that people won't even be able to remember them. Further, it will be a day when God will remove false prophecy from his land. Uh, we saw last week, didn't we, that there is uh, a very tight connection in the Bible between false prophecy and idolatry. If you follow false prophets or false teachers, then you will end up worshipping idols, just as those false teachers worship idols. But here, notice that God will remove false prophets and everything false in his land. In verse 3, you have that shocking image of the parents of false prophets putting their own children to death. And in verse 4, you see the false prophets being exposed by God. Uh, it says there that the false prophets will be ashamed. It says that they will no longer put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. Uh, what's all that about? Um, well, do you remember a true prophet in the Bible who was a hairy man? Who was a true prophet in the Bible who was a hairy man? 
Elijah. Elijah was a true prophet in the Bible. Uh, he was a hairy man. And so, uh, what is happening here is that the false prophet will no longer masquerade uh, as a hairy man like Elijah and pretend that, that he's a true prophet, you see. And finally, in verse 5, the false prophet comes clean and admits that he's not a true prophet, but simply a worker of the field. Now, I don't think this is a picture of false prophets uh, repenting before God. Rather, it's a picture of the false prophet being exposed on that last day so that they have no option but to admit their sin and come clean before God, even as they are being judged. Uh, you know, last week, um, with these bright lights uh, installed in our church building, and uh, I noticed um, a few women as they came into church uh, kind of covered up their faces, saying, Oh, these, these lights ex- are exposing every blemish on my face. Um, maybe next week I need to put on more makeup, was what one of them said to me. Um, you see, what God is saying here is that on the day that He speaks about, He will expose every sin. He will expose every blemish. He will expose every uncleanness. Even as he cleanses every sin and blemish of his own people. Now, why is this cleansing needed? Well, we've seen that uh, on that day that God speaks about here, uh, the people will mourn and repent of sin. But if God is going to usher in his eternal kingdom, then he needs to deal with the problem of sin and rebellion for good. But the good news here is that God says to the people of Zechariah's time that such a day is coming. It will be a day of deep cleansing from sin. Uh, I was in water in one of those high-pressure hoses Anyone own one of those? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Beverly owns one. My pressure hose. Well done. You know, on the day I bought this hose, I felt so manly because it's such a such a powerful machine, and it's wonderful. It removes every stain from the driveway. It removes every piece of dirt that stubbornly clings to the surface of my car. It can get to every nook and cranny. I can't reach without to remove all the dirt and grime that is there. But you see, what God is saying here to the people of Zechariah's day is that a day is coming when God will do that to your sin. On that day, there will be no sin that is too great that God cannot cleanse from your life. On that day, there will be no stain so stubborn that God cannot remove from your life. On that day, God will completely cleanse you of sin and uncleanness such that you can be in a right relationship with Him. But how will God cleanse His people from their sin and uncleanness? Well, if you have a look uh, towards the, the final part of our passage, 
you can see that the answer God gives in Zechariah is that he will cleanse by wielding a sword. Yet here's the shocking thing. The shocking thing is that it is God himself who will yield the sword not only against his enemies, but here against his own shepherd and king. You can see it there in verse 7, can't you? Chapter 13, verse 7, where God says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, it's not that God is this monster who is unfeeling enough to put his own king to death here. Remember that when the king is pierced, God himself feels peace. Further, it's not that the people of God are not responsible for the killing of the king because we've seen, haven't we, that it is actually their sin that, uh, that contributes to the king being put to death. And yet what this verse reminds us of is the shocking truth that God's plan all along was to put his very own king to death for the sins of his people so that they can be cleansed and forgiven and made right with him. What are the consequences of this? Well, you can see a number of consequences follow uh, God striking his shepherd with his, uh, with his uh, sword, can't you? Firstly, at the end of verse 7, when the sheep is struck, uh, the sheep are scattered. Sorry, when the shepherd is struck, the sheep are scattered. Secondly, in verse 8, when the shepherd is struck, uh, two-thirds of God's people perish, the majority, while one-third survive. And finally, those who survive are put through the suffering of fire like a piece of precious metal so that all the impurities will be burned away and they will be refined. And it is these people that God says are right with him. Now friends, remember that God is speaking to the people of Zechariah's time about a day in their future. But when will this day come? Well, the New Testament writers say that this day has already come. It has already come at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in Zechariah, God speaks about that day when the nations will gather uh, against his own people in, in the city of Jerusalem. Well, in the New Testament, you see exactly that happening. The representatives of the nations, the Jewish um, the Jewish king, Herod, and the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and the Roman or Gentile soldiers gathered against one of God's people. In fact, he's anointed king in the city of Jerusalem, laying siege to him. In Zechariah, uh, sorry, in today's passage in Zechariah, we see that this good king will be pierced. Now, when you get to the New Testament, it is at the cross that God's king is pierced, not only with cruel nails driven through his hands and his feet, but 
If you remember, with that spear that the soldier uses to pierce his side, in John chapter 19, verse 34, uh, we are told this. It says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Yeah, strange, isn't it? Why does John mention water here? Well, it's because in the Bible, water is often a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And so what we are meant to see, see here is that as God's King is being pierced, and as He dies on the cross, God is pouring out His Spirit, you see, granting grace to people and allowing people to plead to Him for mercy. Further in Zechariah, God says that He will strike the shepherd and the sheep themselves will be scattered. And when you get to the New Testament, that is precisely what happens, isn't it? Jesus is struck at the cross by the judgment of God for the sin of the people, and all his disciples desert him and are scattered. But here's the strange thing, friends. Well, while in the Old Testament, God speaks about the day as a single day that is to come, well, in the New Testament, that day stretches out to be the last days. The last days begins with the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection, and it will end when Jesus comes back to judge the world. And why does the day stretch out to a period of time rather than a single day? Well, one answer to that question is because God is now extending His grace and mercy to unbelievers before He finally calls time on this world and brings everything to an end. But another answer to that question is that this is the period when God is refining His people, like silver and gold being purified through fire. You know, if you are a Christian person here, and uh, you are going through trials in your life, it is not a sign that God is against you. It is actually a sign that God is purifying you and refining you to be more like Jesus. It might be the trials of life that is not uniquely Christian, such as sickness, or financial difficulties, or other difficult circumstances in your life. Or it might be trials that are, that are uniquely Christian, such as uh, persecution, or standing for Jesus, and facing ridicule and opposition from unbelievers. But whatever it is, following Jesus as your King is costly. And what God is doing is He is refining you to be someone fit for his kingdom. As you look to the cross, as you mourn over your own sin, and as you continue to repent of those things in your life. Do you believe this? That when you go through trials and difficulties, that it is God who is refining you. However, in the very last book of the New Testament, we see another kind of mourning. 
Turn with me to uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, and I'll end with uh, this verse. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 7. Uh, the Apostle John looks to the day that Jesus will return, and listen to what he says uh, in this verse. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. It says, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. In other words, friends, if you have not turned to Jesus as God's good king and the king of your life, mourning over your sin and asking him to cleanse him, uh, cleanse you from your sin, there will come a day when it is too late. And on that day, you will mourn and you will wail as you face Jesus, not as your saviour and king, but as your judge and executioner. And so if you are here this morning, and you don't know whether you are right with God, turn to Jesus before he is too late. He loves you. He died for you. So look to what he has done. Mourn over your sin. Repent of your ways. And start to follow him. Submit to him as your king. And God promises that if you do, you will be part of this people who will one day hear those wonderful words from God. They are my people. Even as you say to him, the Lord is my God. Let's pray. And let me start. We thank you for your words to us today and thank you that all your promises in the scriptures find their yes and their amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the one who defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death and Satan at the cross. We thank you that it is through his death that we can be cleansed of our sin and uncleanness. And we thank you that even though you do not promise to remove every trial from our lives this side of heaven, you are still at work in us, refining us, and purifying us to be more like Jesus. Now, Father, we so look forward to that day when Jesus will return and usher in uh, your kingdom and defeat everything that stands against you. Now, we so look forward to standing in the crowd and hearing those wonderful words, They are my people even as we call out to you, the Lord is my God. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to continue to persevere, looking forward to that day, looking to the cross, mourning over our sin in ways that lead to repentance. And if there are any here who are not yet right with you, we pray that you would pour out your spirit of grace, and please have mercy on them so that they will come to Jesus as their King and Savior. Please pour out your spirit in abundance. We pray this in Jesus.